Today's Bible reading is found in John's Gospel. We're reading from verse 19 through to verse 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, in their, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, and Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday, let me pray for us as we come to God's word together in John chapter 20. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which is living and active. And we pray now that you might help us uh, to grasp uh, the incredible eyewitness accounts from that first Easter, that we might hear them and respond rightly and live in light of them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Australians generally avoid talking about death. And the result is we avoid focusing on its inevitability of course it's never been high on the list of dinner party talk and when it does come up in conversation the focus is usually on denying death or at least postponing it uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald good weekend magazine a few years ago now uh, Philip Rhodes a biologist and an IT consultant uh, spoke about his own approaching death this way he said, I'm going to live forever. When I die, I've made arrangements to have my body flown to America and go into cryonic suspension. There are 100 people in cryonic suspension already, four of them Australians, and another 1,000 on the waiting list. It costs about $70,000, and most of us are involved in medicine or science. And we believe that it will one day be possible to revive and repair us. Well, Rhodes did admit that uh, lying suspended in liquid nitrogen at minus 196 degrees Celsius is not everybody's cup of tea, but he sees it as a legitimate approach to his death. Well, I guess he's able to talk about death, sort of, in a way, but I think his story is really a memorable summary of our society's denial of death, of pushing it away rejecting its hold on us. He's going to be revived and repaired. He's going to live forever. 
Well, this avoidance and denial is ultimately due to fear. We fear death and those fears have been amplified, I think, for us during this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, The Bible acknowledges that death is our enemy. In fact, it states in 1 Corinthians 15 that death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. And death is usually feared by humanity because we're unsure of what will happen next. What happens after death? We don't want to confront it. And the reaction when we're finally confronted with it, for many people it seems these days, is like the famous Dylan Thomas poem, uh, that Welsh poet who wrote as his father lay dying about his death, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. But what if somebody could defeat death for us? What if somebody could overcome our enemy, had the power over life and death, who could grant us hope beyond the grave? Well, of course, that's the Bible's huge claim that Jesus Christ is that one person who has the power over death. And as we come to consider the resurrection on this Easter Sunday, we're going to think about the question today, why can we be certain about the resurrection and the implications of it? You know, is this an unchanging truth that can help us in the changing times that we face? Why can we be certain about the resurrection of Jesus and its implications? Well, the first answer to that question is this. Because the eyewitnesses moved from confusion, fear and doubt to certainty. Because the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses moved from confusion, fear and doubt to certainty. Notice again how John's account commences of the resurrection. Chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. Early on the first day of the week, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And so it's Sunday morning. Uh, The rest day of the Sabbath or the Saturday has ended. They're free to go around, and Mary goes to the tomb at first light. But when she reaches the tomb, the stone has been removed and there is no body present. And so she rushes back to the disciples and then Peter and John run to the tomb. We see their reaction in verses 3 to 9 as they run to the tomb to check out Mary's story. This is really important for the eyewitness account here because there are additional witnesses that confirm to us that the tomb really was empty. They, they see the strips of linen. They see uh, the burial cloth folded up, but no body present. But like Mary at this point, they're confused. They don't easily jump to believing in the resurrection of Jesus. There's no easy blind faith here. They're convinced that the body is missing, but they don't know what the explanation is. Notice what we read in verses 8 and 9. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John says he believed, but it seems just in the fact that the tomb was empty. But there's no understanding of the resurrection, despite all the Old Testament 
references to it, despite Jesus' own words, where at least three times he announced to the disciples that he would die and then be raised on the third day. Well, in verses 10 and 11, Peter and John have gone, but Mary stays put at the tomb, just as she stayed put at the cross in John chapter 19. Here it is, she stays again. And it seems that resurrection has not entered her mind at all either. She is weighed down by grief. She's confused about what has taken place. And through her tears, she peers into the tomb. And finally, even when she is confronted by the risen Jesus, she mistakes him for the gardener and so questions him about where the body has been placed. And of course, when she finally grasps that it's Jesus, the discovery that he's alive is overwhelming for her. She still doesn't fully understand what is happening, but certainly her grief has now turned to joy. Grief and despair indeed have turned into joy a certainty that Jesus is with them. And she goes and reports to the disciples. And then in the remainder of the chapter, there are two further resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples. Firstly, in verses 19 to 23, we have a second appearance on that first Easter Sunday. It's in the evening and 10 of the 11 disciples are present. Notice what we read from verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so despite Mary Magdalene informing the disciples that she had seen the risen Jesus, they had not believed her. You see, their mindset is still one of fear. They're locked inside a house, fearful of the Jews. There's no change in their outlook, despite Mary's claim that Christ is risen. But just as Mary's grief turned to joy and faith, so now also the disciples' grief will turn to joy. But one of the 11 disciples, uh, Thomas, is not present. And so... Even when he returns and the other disciples explain to him that they have seen Jesus and he is alive, he simply will not believe them. Although he has spent the last three years with these ten friends, although they are all eyewitnesses and giving him the account of Christ standing before them in the room, he will not believe it. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I see the side where he was pierced, I will not believe it. Well, this is why we have the phrase doubting Thomas. And I'm very glad for Thomas because he represents, doesn't he, that voice of doubt. The voice of doubt that so many people have when they first hear or read this resurrection account of Jesus. This most unique event in history. And there is good reason for us to be skeptical. I mean, we're so used to hearing about so-called miracles today, which are often weak hoaxes, even religious ones. The miracles of the Bible, including the supreme supernatural event of the resurrection, are often seen in the light of these by those who are not believers, and understandably so. 
Uh, back in 1999, um, my wife Christine and I had the opportunity to travel to Europe and we spent a few days in Portugal and we travelled to the north of that country to a place called Fatima. Now Fatima is famous for a basilica there that has been built on the site of where the mother of Jesus, Mary, supposedly appeared to three children in 1917. Two of those children died within a couple of years but it's accepted as a miracle of the Catholic Church. Even more disturbing is a claim that the statue of Mary that has been built there cries regularly, even though it's made of marble. She'd supposedly been crying just before we had got there, but she didn't perform for us. Now, any person will be unimpressed with such pretend miracles. Is it any wonder that many people look at the resurrection account of Jesus and on first reading think this just can't be true? These people are just making it up. But the resurrection, you see, is something that cannot be faked. Christianity stands or falls on this one point. And so it's a crucial thing to consider. And so Thomas, as one of the disciples, plays a really important part in helping us to see the unfolding events of Christ's resurrection over the first week. Because his disbelief leads to Jesus appearing a week later, the Sunday following, before all the disciples again, this time with Thomas present. Have a look at verses 26 to 28 with me. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, like the first appearance a week earlier, Jesus shows Thomas the scars of his crucifixion. You know, the nail marks through his hand, the wound in his side where the soldiers had pierced him with a spear while he was on the cross. Uh, there's a famous painting by Cavaggio of this scene uh, depicting Thomas checking out the marks and coming to a firm faith in what had happened. Christ challenged to believe. And it issues in this wonderful statement, doesn't it, by Thomas in verse 28, my Lord and my God, as he acknowledges Christ's divinity. Now, as we've seen in this chapter, there is a progressive unfolding of the events of this first Easter Sunday. You know, there's a movement of Jesus' followers who go from grief and confusion and doubt to joy and certainty, a firm faith that Jesus has truly risen from the dead. Well, that's the first answer considered. The eyewitness accounts and how they came to certainty themselves, though they were very suspicious and sceptical to begin with. But the second answer to our question of why we can be certain about the resurrection is this. Because John's account is written so that we might be certain. John's account is written to give us certainty. Have a look at verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John is stating the expectation at the end of his biography, his account of Jesus' life, 
that those who read it, even if they haven't been present, will be expected to make a response, that there is enough evidence presented here from the eyewitnesses that all those who read subsequently could come to a point themselves of placing their faith in Jesus. And though we didn't get to see things firsthand, uh, we get these reports and we have the four biographies of Christ's life in Matthew, Mark, Luke and this account in John. And so we can reach a point of certainty based on the evidence ourselves. Having said that, even with these eyewitness accounts, of course, many people find the resurrection of Jesus hard to believe. They naturally cast doubt on the empty tomb and all these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that are recorded here. And so people can struggle to accept the reality of the resurrection. It's because these things just don't happen in everyday life. Dead people don't rise. It's just outside of our known realm of possibility. But that's the very point of the gospel accounts. Their point is that Jesus is unique. If he truly is the Son of God, if he is a divine one who has come to earth and taken on flesh, then the resurrection is nothing short of what we might expect of the Son of God. And the evidence that is presented for the truth of the resurrection fits with the reality of history that follows. You see, if these events were just a fabrication, that these were just friends of Jesus who wrote down things that were not true, then there were plenty of eyewitnesses at that time in the first century who could have come forward and said, look, here is the body. Uh, this news is fake. Or, no, this could not have happened and this is why. But you see, that did not happen. The gospel, the good news about Jesus' resurrection just would never have taken hold, would never expanded so quickly over the first century if it were simply a, fa a fabrication. Because none of the disciples either would have gone to their death, and so many of them did, sometimes horrific deaths, over a lie. If forced at the point or the threat of their life to renounce their claim that Jesus had risen, then we would expect that there would be those who would have turned back and announced, yes, it was all a lie. But that never happened. They went to their graves holding to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the very existence of the church today is testimony of the truth of these accounts, which have failed to be discredited over 20 centuries. Compare that with those involved in the Watergate scandal of the 1970s in the United States. It was a scandal that began with the burglary and wiretapping of the Democratic Party's campaign headquarters and it later engulfed President Richard Nixon so that he became the first US president ever forced to resign. The rest of the burglars uh, eventually led to the uncovering of a White House-sponsored espionage plan that went to the very top of the country, all the top officials and aides of Nixon and Nixon himself. But you see, initially, they denied it. They said they had no involvement in it. It simply wasn't true. It had nothing to do with them. But a Senate Select Committee on Presidential Activities opened hearings in May of 1973. And when it did so, slowly, one by one, those who were brought before it 
admitted their lies, that they had had nothing to do with it. Especially when it was revealed that Nixon himself had created incriminating evidence by installing a taping system within the White House that had recorded their conversations, indeed his own. One by one they admitted the lie because of the threat of imprisonment and the truth came out. But you see, the disciples of Jesus never changed their story, even when they were threatened with death. Sir Lionel Alfred Lucku was a Guyana-born politician, diplomat and a leading lawyer, a well-known lawyer famed for his 245 consecutive successful defences in murder cases. His reputation earned him an entry into the Guinness Book of World Records where he is dubbed the world's most successful lawyer. Lucku became a Christian at a businessman's fellowship meeting he attended in 1978. After his conversion, he became an itinerant speaker and wrote a number of booklets outlining why he had come to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how he understood the evidence as it was presented in the Gospels. He wrote one particular booklet named The Question Answered, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And in it, he wrote this. I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world. And I have been fortunate to secure successes in jury trials. And I say unequivocally that the evidence presented for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels us to accept it. It is a proof which is, leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And so Lionel Lucku would say to us, as John says to us in his gospel in John chapter 20 here, the ball is in our court. This is a message that requires us to respond. A decision has to be made. And so if you are not a believer today, I want to urge you to consider where you stand with regard to Jesus. Have you considered the evidence of his death and resurrection I want to be clear that God calls on you to respond to the message of Easter. And so we need to make a choice because it determines where we spend eternity. This is no small question. It's the greatest news of all that we'll ever receive in our life. And it's also the biggest decision that we'll ever have to make. And so it's not one to just simply brush aside. It's worth investigating. Let me encourage you to read for yourself one of the biographies of Christ's life to read John's gospel from cover to cover will only take you a couple of hours and assess for yourself the presentation of those eyewitnesses in the life of this unique person indeed the son of God if you are a Christian I want to ask you today whether you have grasped the confidence that the resurrection of Jesus should give you in the face of death you see, the Apostle Paul states elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 54 to 57 the implications of Christ's resurrection for ourselves. He states, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? 
Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this sure hope of the resurrection, which the first disciples came to, and which we can come to as well, means that our great enemy, death, has been defeated. Indeed, this is an incredible victory which swallows death. Instead of death overcoming life, death itself is overcome. And so this is such monumental news that Paul says the result is that anyone who places their faith in Jesus has a new perspective on not only this life, but on their approaching death and what follows. Paul is so confident that he speaks with the words of the prophet Hosea, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And that line is one that's been taken up by many Christian writers down through the last 20 centuries. In John Bunyan's famous book, A Pilgrim's Progress, he speaks of death as a river which a Christian crosses as they pass to heaven. And he writes of one character in his book, Mr. Valiant for Truth's death with such taunting confidence. When the day that he must go had come, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which as he went, he said, Where, O death, is your victory? And as he went a little deeper still, Where, O death, is your sting? And so he passed over and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. You see, death is like a schoolyard bully. You know, whom other children cowered before until one day he was overthrown by a stronger opponent and gave freedom to all. You know, Christ has won a victory for us, which means that we face death with great confidence and we are assured that we too will be resurrected just as our Savior was. You know, Joni Erickson Tata is a famous American Christian. Famous because at the age of 17, she uh, dived into Chesapeake Bay, into shallow water, and became a quadriplegic as a result. And she's lived now to the age of 70, uh, dealing with all the restrictions that has come with that. And it's been a great test of her faith. And in an Easter devotion, uh, which she wrote just last week, which she entitled, Why Should I Fear Death? She wrote this. My useless hands and your wrinkles or your torn meniscus or your failing memory or your macular degeneration, these are only temporary. It's our responses to these afflictions that are eternal. And what's more, those afflictions make the here and now seem vaporous, so thin, so wispy. The span of our earthly lives is limited. Each of our bodies will inevitably fail. Christ's resurrection assures me that a new splendorous body awaits me in heaven. And so why should I fear death? It's a glorious door to healing with a capital H. As the Apostle Paul knew, Christ's glorious resurrection assures believers of their own resurrection from death into eternal life. And so for me, the death and resurrection of Christ have removed every ounce of fear from death. I'm free from being a slave to fear, especially fear of death, she wrote. Well, where do you stand this Easter?
Perhaps when you think about the death of loved ones or your own mortality, you still have a fear there. You don't know that freedom of fear that the Bible speaks about. But perhaps you do have a confidence, a confidence that Jesus has brought you because of his resurrection. May we each have that freedom from fear, that rightly placed confidence, not because of anything that we have done or will ever do, but simply on the basis of Christ's resurrection for us, that he has conquered death and won us forgiveness, won us new life and resurrection life. Christ's resurrection is the reason that I'm not afraid to die. And I pray that that will be your confidence to this Easter as you reflect on Jesus' resurrection and what that means for you. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can have great certainty in these changing times because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have the eyewitness accounts of his first disciples and the expectation that we, in reading those, can come to a firm faith as well. Help us to see, if we have done so, the wonderful implications that we might have great confidence in the face of our own mortality, knowing that Christ has gone before us and will raise us up. Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means for us. We thank you that we have one who has gone before us and we long for that day when we too will be with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.